Introspection with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today, we will be hearing from Nathan Michael, Associate Research Professor and Director of the Resilient Intelligent Systems Lab at the Robotics Institute in Carnegie Mellon University. He spoke to our interviewer, Lily, about various strategies for making robots and multi-robot systems more resilient, including introspection, adaptation, and evolvement. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Nathan Michael. I'm a faculty member in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. And can you uh, tell us what your lab is and what your lab does? Sure. Um, The name of my lab is the Resilient Intelligence Systems Lab. Um, We develop resilient intelligence systems. A resilient intelligence system is an autonomous system that's able to mitigate unanticipated challenges through introspection, adaptation, and evolvement. Um, the idea behind introspection is that the system is understanding both how it expects to perform in the world around it as it's operating in that world, and uh, the difference between that expectation of performance and, and how it's actually performing. And from this, the system is then thinking about how perhaps its sensors are degrading or its actuators are performing um, differently than expected or, or other types of changes that may arise. and. It's then adapting. It's learning how to overcome these changes, adapting to those changes, and then taking that which is learned and storing it for future performance or future operations. And that's what we call evolvement. So through this combination of introspection, adaptation, and evolvement, um, these systems then become able to really mitigate these unanticipated challenges that may arise as they're operating and as the world presents new complex situations that they may not have previously seen. Interesting. I've never really heard um, introspection used in in this context, and I want to get back to that later. But first, would you mind um, talking a little bit about what sorts of applications um, drive you or what what sorts of scenarios you envision these intelligent systems working in? Sure. We have deployed systems in a variety of conditions, ranging from... um, earthquake-damaged buildings to uh, environments with high radiation levels, um, nuclear reactors, um, to just, in general, uh, complex environments with lots of complexity in terms of clutter. And uh, under all of these conditions, then you're creating systems that are really having to um, figure out where they are through state estimation, figure out and model the world around them via mapping, Um, Think about how to plan um, both at larger scales as well as through fine-grained maneuvers and and local strategies around all of this clutter. Um, Think about the world as uh, it is uncertain and then make decisions of where to go and really connect all of these together in such a way that that decision-making, planning, um, and control um, really connects in to the perception and all of that complexity uh, really quickly because the robots themselves are often size, weight, and power constrained. 
Um, so there's there's a large number of domains in which we've operated, and a large different uh, large number of different types of robots, either underwater, on the ground, in the air, that we have deployed within those different domains. And for the, those three options, underwater, on the ground, or in the air, which do you find to be the most challenging? Mm. That's an interesting question. They're, they're all challenging in their own way. Um, in the air, one of the greatest challenges is that size, weight, and power constraint that I mo- noted a moment ago. So these are swap constraints. Um, swap constraints are, um, are a, a consequence of the fact that the, the aerial robot must be able to keep itself aloft. It only is able to carry so much energy. Um, and that that constraint then dictates its total mass, and that dictates then its sensing and processing and power. And uh, consequently, then you need to create algorithms that enable the robot to perceive the world and make decisions rapidly, while also having access to reduced sensing and uh, processing capabilities. Um, additionally, these types of aerial robots, for example, quadcopters. Um, are often able to move very quickly. And so we deploy robots that can move at 40, 45, 50 miles per hour um, amongst clutter. That's pretty complex. And so these robots are making decisions very, very rapidly on these limited sensing, limiting, limited compute um, platforms. Um, and that introduces a class of challenges. When you get to operation on the ground, there are different types of challenges. Um, modeling the interactions between the robot and the ground, the terrain that is around the robot, traversability of that terrain, how the system is able to perceive the world around it and then take that into account as it's moving. It's that interaction with the ground that really starts to introduce additional challenges. And that challenge can change whether it's a skid steer robot or it's a wheeled robot with four or six wheels. And then when you go underwater, it's a completely different, uh, well, maybe not a completely different, but a, a, a similar scenario where you have unique challenges that emerge because now you are constrained in your ability to sense and your ability to communicate, depending on the class of actuation or platform that you have, your ability to carry payload is also constrained. You have to be able to potentially operate over uh, longer durations, depending on the nature of the application. And so that confluence of different kinds of constraints then dictate additional challenges in, uh, for example, what types of algorithms you can use, the class of sensors and the quality of the information that you're, you're able to leverage. So each one of those domains presents their own challenges. Then when you also enter into some of these challenging conditions, um, like a highly radioactive environment, then the types of sensing you use or the types of processing that you use may change. If you're deploying your systems into space, then you may be dealing with one level of radiation that allows you to use um, different types of sensors that may not be what you use every day here on Earth, but still reasonably advanced. Conversely, if you're deploying autonomous systems to inspect nuclear reactors where the radiation levels are so high that um, most modern technologies would be um, substantially degraded than you are operating with um, relatively um, antiquated technologies, and that then fundamentally changes what you can achieve. So you've you've um, you've mentioned this idea of introspection and and monitoring what you have going on on board as part of the decision making process, and you also mentioned that in different types of environments you're going to need different kinds of sensors. Do you ever? Um, do you ever have the the robot itself deciding 
on the fly which sensors to use depending on how it how it's taking in information in that introspection process? Yes, absolutely. In fact, all the time. If you wanted to think about introspection in a, in a really um, kind of more um, toy way, you could just think of it as an error signal. It's the difference between, say, how you would expect your sensor to work at every instance in time and what you're actually seeing or how you would expect your, your platform to be moving at every instance in time and what you're actually seeing. So it's, it's an error signal. Um, and yeah, we, we absolutely switch sensors, and this is pretty common. And the idea there is, is that you have many different types of sensors that you can use. You have depth sensors, you have cameras, you have different types of imaging qualities that you can use. And um, there are a variety of additional sensors that you can use, and each introduces different um, considerations. Perhaps some are more accurate, or some can exist in a mode that is um, higher rate but lower accuracy. Perhaps some go longer distances but consume more resources, or perhaps some provide just so much data that it would overwhelm your compute. And so this idea of scheduling and adapting your use of sensor observations based on the saliency in the environment, the richness of the clutter, the complexity of the model, all is employed at uh, the level of state estimation, mapping, planning, uh, and and decision-making of the system in order to change the behavior of the system contingent on the conditions and, and what resources are available and what's working or not working. If, if sensors start to degrade because lights start to, or illumination levels start to go down, or maybe the environment has gone from large, open, and spacious to highly cluttered, uh, one would expect that those changes in conditions then would dictate changes in the strategy that the system's actually using to move around the environment. So all of these things are interrelated. And for a lot of the systems that we are developing and deploying, you must take into account all of these different uh, related concepts in order to create um, systems that are able to move quickly when they have the confidence and the ability to do so and slow down and understand why they need to slow down or change their strategy, how they operate, how they estimate their state, how they model the environment and map and so forth, based on um, changes in performance and conditions. Can you highlight maybe like one specific project that you have ongoing, um, what the different what the different sensors are, what your sort of overarching architecture is on how um, they make decisions like, should I go faster, should I go slower, what should I be measuring now? And Yeah, sure. Um, it's, a, it's a really complex question because there's a lot going on. Um, so I'll, I'll do the best I can to, to answer it in a clean manner. Um, so as an example, we have quadcopters that can move pretty quickly. Um, so 18, 20 meters per second. Um, they can navigate uh, through cluttered environments with um, fine detail like trees and branches and pillars and engineered or organic materials. Um, and they do so without any prior knowledge of that environment. And the way that they achieve this is by combining many different types of sensors that include um, depth observations, depth cameras, um, monocular imagery. Um, I believe there's some stereo imagery that we'll often use, a variety of different instances of these different sensors. Um, and this is all fused together within the context of state estimation. Um, there are many different state estimation strategies. We use uh, an optimization-based approach. 
uh, that takes into account the different sensors, um, the value of the information that they're providing, and the implication of whether or not uh, adding or removing that sensor will impact the compute and update rates of how fast or, or quickly we can actually estimate the state of the system. The rate at which you can estimate the state of the system and the accuracy at which you can estimate the state of the system really then dictates a few things. Um, it impacts your ability to maneuver and plan trajectories and figure out where you are as you're moving. Um, it also impacts your ability to accurately model the environment. Um, and so on, on each of those cases, um, within the context of uh, maneuvering and trajectory generation and control, the robots are locally modeling um, their performance, drag effects, wind effects acting on the system, changes in inertial characteristics, um, and taking that into account in the context of the feedback loop or in the context of trajectory generation, actually changing how they're moving through the environment based on changes in the environmental effects. As state uncertainty negatively impacts or degrades or, or improves, the feedback control strategy changes uh, uh, similarly to adapt for that. And so the decision of how quickly to move or the rate at which the system moves, uh, its ability to actually move quickly is going to change as a consequence of changes in state uncertainty. Similarly, we model the environment around the robot based on a variety of different sensors that I just noted. And those are actually fused together into a representation of the world that is um, a little bit different than what people will often use. Um, often when we think about mapping or, or perception of the environment, we think about it from the perspective of creating say a point cloud representation of the world or a voxel grid representation of the world. Um, what we do is we ask the question of what is the underlying belief distribution that would cause us to see the sensor uh, samples that we're seeing. And so imagine at each instance in time, we're taking a depth observation, a depth cloud, and we're asking this question of, given this depth observation and the depth observation that we saw just a moment ago, what was the underlying distribution that um, describes the world that would have caused those samples to actually be observed. And what that allows us to do is really accurately model the world because we're not making assumptions about, say, the discretization or the voxelized form of that world. Additionally, it allows us to really process that data very efficiently and effectively. And that allows the system to actually infer and think about that model of the world very um, very efficiently while losing very little information about all of the different observations that it's receiving. So this means then now that the, the robot is really thinking at a very high fidelity in terms of accuracy of the model of the world, and it's able to take into account then the state uncertainty um, and connect that with the trajectory generation within the context of belief space. And all of that um, is related to that original question that you asked, and that is, how are the systems taking into account um, what information it has, what the world looks like, the fidelity that it can model, its maneuverability, all within the same kind of theoretic framework. So you mentioned you're building these continuous belief distributions. Could you elaborate on that? So often when, we, when you think about a, a discrete representation like a voxel grid, what you're really saying is, is that there's kind of a, a, an independent, discrete probability distribution that describes the probability of occupancy or the existence of matter in the world. 
um, there's no reason that you had to make that independent or discrete. And so there are lots of examples of where you can um, move to more of a coupled model that isn't independent, and you can move to a continuous representation that relates this probability distribution or this probability of the existence of matter. And so all we're doing is we're asking the question of what is this underlying probability distribution that describes the probability of the existence of matter at any one location. And then we're saying, given the sample observations that I have from the depth camera in your, in your example, this point cloud, what is the distribution that would have generated that? And then as we have more observations, that distribution becomes increasingly confident. Now, what we can do from that is we can then sample and we can say at each location, what is the probability of the existence of matter at this particular location? And then from there, we can actually sample and construct point clouds or construct grid models, occupancy grid models, that then would be the equivalent of how you would typically think of it. Um, the advantage of, of doing it the way that I'm talking about it now, though, is, is that one, the resolution is independent of kind of these preconceived notions that we often put in of saying, I'm just going to create a map that's a five by five centimeter resolution. It's more of a, um, it's a, an arbitrary resolution up to the, the fidelity and the confidence of the sensor observations. Two, the representations that we use for this underlying distribution are extremely succinct. And so we can often see a thousand X reduction in the actual memory footprint of the representation, and that is hugely important for, say, these size, weight, and power constraint systems and the ability to share information across different platforms. So in this, you have this um, kind of complex state estimation, estimation problem, and you're doing this optimization for your different sensor inputs and that sort of thing. Um, and I kind of want to lead into your work on multi-robot systems. Um, do you ever use, do you ever use external perception on a robot from another robot to to augment your state estimation? Um, sure, sure. This is the distributed perception problem. Um, is that what you're, what, what you're referencing? Um, the distributed perception problem, but also the just kind of a mix of proprioception and perception uh, across the different agents. Right. So I, if I understand your question correctly, so, so the distributed perception problem, at least the way that you just phrased it, would be one of that a, each individual robot is understanding where it is in the world and what the world looks like around it. They're then combining their information. So, so let's say that understanding where it is in the world is state estimation, understanding the world around it is mapping. They're then combining their state estimates to get a consistent distributed state estimate. And they're then combining their distributed environmental models to get uh, distributed mapping. And so that combined is distributed perception. And then I think you asked the question of then, do you ever consider how individual robots then perceive each other, say direct observations of the location of the other robot? Right. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. T typically, so, so uh, uh, many years ago, I, I did do some work where we used vision-based techniques to see the, uh, the locations of the other robots. Um, this is, this is a, a, a reasonable strategy. Um, more generally, I've, I've leveraged um, range-based observations that can arise within the context of direct range sensors. 
or uh, via, say, inferred range or, or um, some relative notion of range based on communication and the signal strength associated with how robots are able to communicate with each other within the context of, say, a mesh network. So that would be, th th those are, for example, two examples of um, uh, direct observations or indirect inferred uh, relative relationships. Beyond that, typically within the context of distributed perception, the question that we're ultimately asking is, what is the model that each robot builds of the world around it? And how do those maps of the world correspond between the robots over time? So um, if robot A has built up this complex model of the world and shares it with robot B, how does that map um, relate to what robot C or robot B is seeing and if they've been in the same location at some point in time and then figuring out what the relative transform is between what robot A perceives as the frame of reference for the world and what robot B perceives as the frame of reference for the world. That's, that's typically how we formulate it, but that doesn't incorporate the direct inter-robot observations. Mm -hmm. And are some of the, the challenges in... Um, reconciling those different models of the world is, is, a, is a lot of that in what you mentioned, the, the transform part of it, or um, like developing good metrics for how similar two representations are? What are some of the challenges there? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, when you are talking about um, figuring out how one map looks like another map, you end up asking this question of, do any, any areas that the robot has seen or, or visited um, look like other areas that these other robots may have seen or visited. And here then it's sort of this kind of registration problem of how do I make, or, or is it the case that the maps look similar at any particular locations? Um, there are lots of examples of where this problem is solved pretty readily. If the space has lots of interesting features and you have ac access to um, images from cameras, and, and you can basically do feature correspondence and place recognition. Um, when you start to get into some of the scenarios that I talked about earlier, where you might be deploying teams of robots in subterranean environments where, you know, it might be a cave or tunnel networks that look very different or have very complex clutter or look very similar, um, then sometimes that problem can become pretty hard. And this is this concept of perceptual aliasing, because um, what, what we're basically saying is, is that different places in the environment look the same. One of the interesting remarks here, though, is that um, often places in the environment actually look different. It's just that when we end up modeling them via the map, because if we're using something like a discrete representation, like a voxel grid, you end up discretizing the environment model. You end up losing information. And that discretization ends up quantizing the the information that's in the environment. And so places where there may have been subtle differences are actually lost in terms of um, the, the actual differences because of that quantization. And so this goes then to this problem of having um, representations of the world that are, are very much cognizant of the information that's there and accurately enclose, encodes that information. So this is one of the fundamental challenges, this problem of perceptual aliasing. And a strategy to address it is to develop fundamentally uh, more 
um, interesting and informative representations. Another challenge in distributed perception is just the sheer data that you have to share between the robots. You have to share a lot of information in order to enable the robots to work together, to share the different models of the world around them, to make these decisions of where they have or have not been in the same locations, and to do so in a, in a way that's uh, sufficiently fast that they can then uh, achieve some kind of common notion of the world model. Um, if you are able to overcome those challenges, then um, the, the big next step is to compute what is the um, relative transform or the differences between the two, the two robots' understanding of the world. And then, of course, when you scale this up to many robots, there's um, a lot more complexity because you have many more robots sharing information across um, constrained networks where you have some robots that maybe visited the same places, other robots that have never gone to the same places. And having to deduce that and figure that out in environments that can often look very similar or fundamentally different, um, then this problem starts to, to really become amplified and, and the choice of methodologies and algorithms really starts to matter. Yeah. Yeah, um, this has been fascinating. I do want to also ask you a little bit about um, Shield AI, which I understand you're the CTO of. Yes. Can you speak to what the company's um, mission is? Sure. Um, so Shield AI's mission is to um, develop autonomous systems that are able to um, support and enable uh, service members and civilians. So it's the full autonomous system, um, like hardware, software, everything? Um, yes. So the, the mission statement is uh, to protect uh, service members and civilians. Um, we develop both um, the hardware and the software um, with relationship to a lot of what we just talked about with regard to um, these ideas of resilience and creating systems that are able to operate in challenging domains. Um, and so um, going back to the discussion on the Resilient Intelligence Systems Lab and the work that we, we do there um, in the academic context, um, one of the, the, the highlights I would say to this question is that we're, we're able to really um, take these ideas of resilience and, and leverage those concepts to have um, positive impact in a, in a broader context. And was this company, um, did it spin out of your lab or how did you get involved? Um, there, there's a, a, a natural alignment between many of the ideas that we're thinking about in the Resilient Intelligence Systems Lab and the mission statement uh, and objectives of, of the company. Um, there's the, uh, a very compelling and positive aspect to the mission statement. And, um, and so uh, there's a, a great motivation there to um, positively impact, uh, to what degree possible, uh, the state of the art in this area via a lot of the ideas that we are developing in the Resilient Intelligence Systems Lab. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a question that I, I often ask at the beginning of interviews, but how did you um, get involved in robotics? I have... Um, always been interested in robots. I, I suspect that the greatest motivation that I've always had is this question of how do we create systems that are able to think for themselves? 
um, and solve problems that potentially we cannot solve. This seems like a, a fantastic challenge and one that is very motivated. So I would say this idea of applying these types of concepts, working in the areas of AI and robotics, um, and pushing toward this idea of resilient intelligence and creating systems that are really able to operate in the world, um, learn about how that world is um, or is not behaving as they expect, adapting and evolving based on what the robots perceive and how they engage. I think, I think all of that is very much connected to this idea of creating systems that can really um, improve uh, through experience um, and um, really start to overcome a lot of problems or challenges that are not necessarily anticipated um, at least at the time of their design and development. Yeah, which brings us back to that idea of evolvement that you mentioned earlier, right? Yes. Um, I mean, when you talk about learning and you talk about introspection and, and adaptation, you're really talking about um, concepts that, that are applicable both now and in the future. And and humans do this all the time. As we, we learn about the world around us, we understand how... Um, we take a step, and when we take that step, um, maybe the, the ground is not quite what we expected, and so we learn changes in our model, and then in the future, we leverage that change in the model to improve our performance. And so this idea of accruing experience and getting more and more proficient over time through increased operation is, is a very natural one. Um, and so incorporating that within the context of autonomy and um, intelligent systems is, is important to enable those systems to be able to um, leverage what they've learned historically to improve performance in the future. Um, as you can imagine, learning is extremely expensive from a computational perspective. It's extremely hard to um, really learn a lot of the different um, models in real time all the time. And so it's only possible to really achieve certain levels of performance if you're able to leverage the prior experience that the system has built up in order to enable it to go faster or achieve more um, capable results. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It was nice talking to you as well. And that's the end of today's podcast. As always, simply go to robohub.org forward slash podcast for loads more exciting episodes. And did you know that the Robohub podcast is run by an international team of volunteers who freely give their time? If you enjoy our interviews and would like to support our very small team, please check out our Patreon campaign where you can become a supporter of the podcast from as little as a dollar a month. The money we raise goes straight to producing more exciting new content for you and enabling our interviewers to meet and speak to more researchers, engineers and robot enthusiasts and to cover the latest and greatest from the big international conferences when they're back. To find out more, go to robohop.org forward slash podcast and read up about how you can become a patron. We'll be back again in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Introspection with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>